everybody, and welcome back to the show, the most amazing show on this particular topic ever, right? So, hey, you're listening to Season 2, and this is Episode 8 of the History of Religions and Their Gods. And I am your most sincere host, the skeptical ghost heathen, and I am an ancient history enthusiast, as well as a hobbyist of ancient religions and their origins. So today is April 16th, 2021, and this episode is entitled, The Age of the Mystery Cults. So in this episode, we will discuss the age of mystery cults that were all taken off at the time, and how Christianity appears in contrast to those particular cults. So basically, we are going to look at those features of both cults and see how they compare to each other in contrast. We will also start digging deep into the earliest literature from the religion to see what we can find out about a historical Jesus, and if the evidence is any different from that of any other mystery cult with the demigod. So thank you for listening, and please share with a friend if you think that they would enjoy the show as well and help spread the love. But if you give me an hour, I will give you the history of the world and so much more. So if you're ready for this adventure to begin, let's do it. So how do we recognize Christianity as a mystery cult and Jesus as a myth? This is an age-old question that has been scrutinized for centuries now nearly 2,000 years. But here is just a few things that we need to talk about and just kind of lay out and look in contrast. So at the origin of Christianity in the 30s, Jesus Christ was thought to be a celestial deity, much like any other mystery cult that was around at the time. And like many other of these celestial deities, this Jesus communicated with his subject only through dreams, visions, and other form of divine inspiration, such as prophecy, past and present. But like some other celestial deities, this Jesus was originally believed to have endured an ordeal of incarnation, death, burial, and resurrection in a supernatural realm, but usually and typically not on earth. And as for many other of these celestial deities, an allegorical story of this same Jesus was then composed and told within a sacred community, which placed him on earth in history as a divine human with an earthly family, companions and enemies, complete with deeds and sayings even, and an earthly depiction of his ordeals, not just the ones that were imagined in the outer space as we talked about before. And then subsequent communities of worshipers believed, or at least were taught, that this invented sacred story was real, and either not allegorical or only additionally allegorical. Those communities became politically and financially and demographically dominant in later centuries and controlled which documents would be preserved and which ones would be thrown into the fire. The original belief was then suppressed or at least forgotten. Now, why is this plausible? Because it conforms to several other trends that were happening at the time. Now, let's take a look at some examples. The humorizing trend then was extremely popular, as we even seen and witnessed with Romulus, as Plutarch would actually even talk about him in the life of Romulus as being a living person, a living God, historically, right? 
And the same patterns of a celestial or a mythical deity allegorically places him in human history. And it's found in every other mystery cult at the time. And Christianity absolutely conforms to the mystery cult trend. There's really no difference to it when you overlay these over on top of each other. The role of teaching mysteries containing the secret to eternal life and a ritual in a ritual baptism to secure this eternal life by the agency of a suffering Savior God, who always is the son or a daughter of a God, such as Hercules or even Zeus for that matter. But with subsequent sharing of sacred meals to commune with their Lord and Savior, literally so-called in some of these many sects, and all of these mystery cults arose by combining religious ideas from multiple different cultures to create a new religion. For example, you have Jewish and Egyptian and Persian and Syrian, and usually with a common package that's developed within the Hellenistic culture and religious ideas, like the mystery cult package that we just talked about and the dying and rising cult package that we will discuss now. Every mystery cult is different from every other because it takes on the local culture's ideas and it merges them with those of common features, altering and filling them out in their own way. The evidence of influence is in those common features. The evidence of syncretism is the new different feature or the new or different ways that those features are now realized or even perhaps imagined. And all these religious cults, Transforming polytheism into monotheism through henotheism was becoming the norm. So what is henotheism? Basically, it means it's the belief of one supreme God above all others. And it is actually a transition point between polytheism, many gods of roughly equal status, and monotheism, which is the complete absence of all other divine beings. Now, Technically, if you recall, when we talked about the earliest forms of Judaism, and as we'll talk about now, the earliest form of Christianity, they were originally henotheistic and not properly monotheistic. That didn't come until later because they imagined entire pantheons of divinities, namely angels and demons. They were no different in nature from what other henotheists and even polytheists would call gods and simply using a different word for them that's just mere semantics. This included even special archangels like Jesus or even Satan, who were worshipped as proxies for the representative of the Supreme God. Before the invention of the strict Trinitarianism, a century or more after Christianity even began, sometime around the third century of the Common Era. So in many of these mystery cults, agriculture was a community salvation a community salvation cult that were being retold as personal salvation cults. So what that said, when you really think about it, Judaism was an agricultural community salvation cult, and Christianity transformed it into a personal salvation cult, exactly on trend for every other mystery cult within the religion. So in many of these mystery cults, agriculture, community salvation cults, were being retooled as personal salvation cults, nearly every single one of them. And they usually had a goddess, as we talked about in Nana or Ishtar. Many of these goddesses or these gods were over 
what? Over the agriculture, great growth of crops. So Judaism in its earliest stages, remember we talked about engaging into the Babylonian zodiac in their calendar to be able to manipulate their crops when it was time to harvest. So they, Judaism was on board with their Babylonian neighbors in terms of how to use these particular cults. So Judaism was an agricultural community salvation cult, and Christianity trans transformed it, just like that. So when you look at it like this, Jesus looks like any other dying and rising demigod at the time, common with mystery cult themes of all who which were fictional characters, right? Because we don't accept Osiris as being a actual god at the time. You can't have one without the other. One's not real and the other one is real. You can't. So for example, let's just talk about a few of these. So we, we keep talking about Romulus because I think he's like the, one of the closest examples. So Romulus, you know, he was the Roman state god. And his death and resurrection was celebrated in annual passion plays because it was so important to them at the time. And this went on for centuries. And it was also witnessed and seen by, you know, Jews for hundreds of years. And then Osiris, the Egyptian god, those who baptized in his death and resurrection are saved in the afterlife. There was a huge common theme within that particular mystery cult. Zalmoxis, who is a Thracian god, his death and resurrection assures his followers of eternal life. Then you have the Bacchus or Dionysus cult, which is the Greek god. Those who baptize into his death and resurrection are also equally, just like the others, saved in the afterlife. This is a theme that was going on for well before the uh, Judeo-Christians decided to move from one cult into another, into a, to a salvation cult. So the central figures that are worshipped in every one of these mystery cults, they were all considered savior gods. In particular, they are all the son or daughters of gods. They all undergo a passion which is an identical word, meaning some suffering or major ordeal are usually often involved with death. And they all obtain that by victory over death, which they share with their worshipers. And they all have stories about them in a human history on earth. Yet none of them ever actually existed. So let, let's talk about Philo of Alexandria a little bit. Remember, he was the Greek um, Jewish philosopher. And he basically says that there was a pre-Christian Jewish belief in a celestial being that Philo appears to identify with the biblical figure actually named Jesus. But whether so named or not, he clearly identifies a supreme archangel who shared the same peculiar attributes with Jesus worshipped even by the very first Christians, both entities being, so for example, um, we're going to do some quotes in here, um, the firstborn son of God, which is just like Jesus in Romans 8.29. Or the celestial image of God, just like the Jesus in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Or God's agent of creation, as we'd seen as in Jesus in 1 Corinthians 8.6. And God's celestial high priest, just like the Jesus that we see in Hebrews 2.17 and 4.14. So I think that's super interesting because this is Philo of Alexandria. This is the, you know, Jewish philosopher 
who basically is now talking about this new Christian cult that is worshiping this guy that is very familiar to what um, Jews were worshiping. You know, we, we talked about that before within the, uh, the the Messianic Jews and this Messiah that they were imagining. So it's, it's actually pretty interesting that he would um, call that out. But if Christianity resembled those other mystery cult traits with in its savior story, as well as in all these other respects, then the incarnation, death, and the burial of Jesus may also have taken place in outer space, just below the moon, as we discussed in the last episode, right? So if all these attributes are so similar and the same as the Osiris and the Romulus cults and the uh, Dysonides and all these other guys, botches, it's interesting because that puts the Jesus story also taking place in outer space. You can't have you can't you can't have one and not the other is basically I think the point that we're getting to here. Now this is plausible because the same was taught that of Osiris in all the neighboring provinces of Egypt. Public stories put him on earth, but private stories had his death and resurrection occur in outer space and just below the moon. This was happening for Osiris. And similarly, the biblical Adam, remember Adam and Eve, who Jesus is replaced by, as told in 1 Corinthians 15, 45-47, was also believed to have been buried in outer space. And in the odd and out-of-place out um, scripture, located in the Revelation of Moses, and the earliest epistles consistently appeared to place Jesus in outer space and never on earth, just like the biblical Adam. And other savior gods did not really exist either. And so, they, but they were believed in, like Osiris, to have undergone their suffering or death in non-earthly realms. So now I want to talk about Christianity's first writings, the, the, the first literature that we have, and that comes from Paul, right? We know that this is coming sometime between the 40s and the 50s and perhaps um, ending sometime around the 60s, but definitely before the war. So probably more before 64 of the common era, right? So we need to take a look at what Paul tells us about either one, a celestial Jesus as we talked about with these other mystery salvation cults, or more of a historical Jesus that we got from the Gospels that are writing in the mid to the late 70s, all the way into the early of the second century. So what do we get from out of his letters? And remember, we can only talk about the seven letters that are actually confirmed as authentic, not the others that, were, that we have to throw away, because they, and we can look at them, but they are they are absolutely um, the works of second and third century Christian apologetics. So now I want to talk a little bit about Pliny the Younger. You remember him? We talked about him a little bit in the past episodes. But Pliny the Younger wrote a lot about his uncle, who was his adoptive father, Pliny the Elder. But, but Pliny the Younger had a very good friend, and you heard of this guy too, Tacitus. And his friend Tacitus, he was absolutely fascinated and just enamored with his uncle's heroic death. Pliny the Elder, that is. So he basically writes a letter to, to Pliny the Younger and asks him to give him all of the details about the circumstances of 
Pliny's death and, and, and how he handled it and how he acted in the final days of his life until his, until his death. And we'll talk about why he died. But Tacitus wanted to include something in his own document, his own documentary that he was writing, his writing a history, if he would. And, he was, and it was obviously that he also was so curious. He just wanted to hear about this remarkable and heroic and historic story. And who wouldn't, after all? Because human curiosity is universal. And something like this could not just be set aside as of no interest at all. The circumstances of his death, after all, were so memorable that and it's likely to make his name live on forever, much like Jesus, according to some. People, we all have this instinct. We talked about it before from the very first episode. We are gossipers by nature, and we are curious. We always want to know. If somebody gives us the slightest little bit of a secret, what do we do? We beg for the answer. We beg to be told about it. We are information-seeking machines. So Pliny the Younger is absolutely happy to respond to, to his friend Tacitus. So basically what he does is he writes him a letter containing an extensive eyewitness account of everything that he saw and everything that he knew about his father's death. And he does this in all about 1,500 words. We have the letter. And so in comparison, or in contrast, Paul's letters to the Galatians, which is one of his shorter, shorter letters, contains about 3,000 words. Then in his letter to the Romans, nearly about 10,000 words, although we have learned that most of that is imitation. It's pat stitch work of what had previously been several shorter letters that somebody interpolated. Remember, we talked about that in the last episode. But overall, when you put it all together, we have about 20,000 words from Paul. But in Pliny, but in Pliny's mere 1,500 words to his buddy, we learn that his father died from respiratory failure after breathing the ashfall from Mount Vesuvius in an attempt to investigate the disaster and to try to help rescue survivors as he was commander of the Roman naval fleet that was stationed nearby. And Pliny relates as much detail as he was witness to and those present was able to inform him about it. And Pliny's response piqued Tacitus' curiosity so much and questions, he decides to question even more. And he wrote again, asking, asking Pliny himself, you know, what he did in the days immediately following that tragedy. And Pliny again, he, he obliged him with an account of that following, you know, and following letter right after that. And as Pliny says, the letter which you asked me to write on my uncle's death has made you eager to hear about the terrors and the hazards I have faced forward. So this is exactly the kind of exchange in letters that we should expect to hear from the earliest Christians as well. Not necessarily in every respect, but surely something like it, right? Because of curiosity, that burning desire to know, to, to have first-hand accounts, remember? to have specific questions answered and desires for knowledge satisfied. This would dominate every single congregation under Paul and beyond, most especially in respect to being the Son of God and the Savior of the universe who we're writing about here, whose deeds and speeches and death were for them, the most important in all of history. That same burning desire exhibited by Tacitus and eagerly satisfied by his best friend Pliny. This would have been multiplied 
a thousandfold in the two decades of Paul's mission. Given the number of Christians and distant churches that he had by then that were spanning over three continents, for not even one person to have ever exhibited this interest in writing, nor for any to have, have, have so satisfied, is bizarre. It's bizarre to me, and it's bizarre to every single biblical scholar alive today and has also lived over centuries. If everything was resolved in person in all of the churches, Paul, Paul would never have written a letter at all. Now, what even makes this more odd, or even more bizarre, is that there were countless moral and doctrinal disputes that were arising in these congregations, which is the very reason that Paul wrote such long and detailed letters to them, which must necessarily have rested on many questions that the actual facts of Jesus' words, life, death, would have been addressed, answered, or at least pertained to. Such facts thus necessarily become points of curie, debate, and contention. But it's not, which in turn would have involved eyewitnesses weighing in, either directly or writing letters themselves indirectly by dictating letters through hired scribes, which were abundantly available for just that purpose in those days. There were surely even scribes within the Christian congregations that would be willing to volunteer to share these thoughts, share these questions, these inquiries, or even by proxy, communicating with educated leaders like Paul, who would then relay, you know, what they've learned. So I guess at this point in the episode, you know, or within the letters that we're looking at from what he gives us, the question is we need to ask, is Paul writing as a someone talking about a myth? Is he a mythicist? Or is he writing as a historicist? This is what we're going to get down to. This is the nitty gritty here. So this is a particular indifference of Paul and his Christians. As a psychologist once put it, about Paul's letters to fellow congregants in Rome who he had not yet met and thus can't have shared his own stories with at this point. So I'm going to quote this really quick. Begin quote. Imagine for a moment that one of your friends writes to you a 20-page letter passionately wanting to share her excitement about this new teacher. This letter has only one topic, your friend's new teacher. But at the end of her letter, you still don't know one thing about this teacher. Yet, Paul presents this central figure of his theology this way. It seems impossible to imagine how Paul could avoid telling one story or parable or fail to note one physical trait or personal quality about his Jesus. End quote. Now, indeed, Paul absolutely mentions Jesus or Christ in his seven authentic letters at at least 280 times. And that doesn't count for other references to him as, you know, the Lord or the Son of God. But altogether, Paul found over 300 occasions to mention Jesus by some name or different title. And on at least half of those occasions, he tells us some particular fact or another about this Jesus. But as we will see, not one of those facts connects Jesus with an earthly life at all, without adding any suppositions into the text, of course. 
but his crucifixion is mentioned over 15 times and his resurrection over 30 times, but never, ever, ever provides any details about it. So those could have occurred in outer space, just like the other mythological gods and deities that we've been talking about. We hear very little else. So, so far from what we're looking at right now with the 300 mentions, especially within the crucifixion, there is no reason to believe that it happened on Earth, any different than what we get from Osiris or Romulus. In fact, the only Jesus Paul shows any knowledge of is a celestial being, not an earthly man at all. Paul's Jesus is only ever in the heavens to him, right? Through the dreams and hallucinations. But never once in his baptism is ever mentioned, or his ministry, or, or a trial, or any of his miracles, or any historical details about what he was like. What did he do? Or, or, or suffered? Or where he was from? Or, or where he had been? Or what people he even knew? No memories from those who knew him are ever even reported. And Paul is writing in the earliest. Paul is writing in the 50s and the 60s. Paul never mentioned Galilee or Nazareth or Pilate or Mary or Joseph or any miracles that Jesus did or any miraculous powers that he's supposed to have displayed or anything about the life of Jesus in contrast to the Gospels, right? Paul never references any event in Jesus' life as an example to even follow beyond the abstractions of love, endurance, and submissiveness. But we know why Paul was doing this. We know why. We know what was going on during the time, right? Think about early Messianic Jews. We were, it, it, war was imminent, guys. War was imminent. And never places anything Jesus said in any earthly historical context whatsoever. So far, as these letters tell us, no Christian ever asked Paul about these things, nor did any of these things ever become relevant enough in any of the disputes Paul ever had with anyone. Never comes up. And if they did, maybe, maybe if the letters did come up, maybe they were thrown away. The church was known for doing that, right? But not one of his opponents, so far as Paul mentions, ever referenced a fact about Jesus' life in support of any of their arguments. And, and no one ever doubted anything he claimed about Jesus and asked for a witness to confirm it or explain it or, 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 or to give, give more details. And again, Paul wrote all these letters and none of this stuff comes up. The interest that, that, that Tacitus showed in Pliny's father is never exhibited by any of them nor is Pliny's eagerness to talk about his, father's, about his father ever exhibited by Paul in any of his eagerness to talk about his Jesus. And yet Paul talks obsessively and repeated about Jesus. You just don't have that same level of eagerness or that same level of interest or of intrigue that Pliny and, and Tacitus had, right? You would think that if we're talking about the leader of the entire world, the, 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 our Savior, <laughs> the Son of God, that people would be asking a lot of questions, just like Tacitus was with this best friend Pliny. But we don't have that. 
That's simply just bizarre. And what does bizarre mean? Unexpected, which means infrequent, which means improbable. Now, accordingly, historicists have to explain away. They have to explain why Paul's letters, there are no disputes about what Jesus ever said or ever did, and why no specific example from his life is ever referred to as a model, not even encouraged to teach anything or to resolve any disputes, and why the only sources ever refers to for anything he claims to only know about through private revelations and hidden messages in scripture. And that's why Paul appears to not know of these things. That's why he doesn't know there being any other source other than these, like people who knew Jesus. Right? Whatever explanation historicists devise from these curiosities has to be demonstrably true, and not something that they just make up to explain the evidence. Now, all this is evident in such passages as we talked about before in his letter to the Galatians in chapter 1, 11 through 16, where basically Paul says he received the gospel only by revelation. And then he says in his letter to the Romans in 15, 25 to 26, where scripture and revelation are the only sources of information about his Jesus that Paul mentions Christians having. And in Romans 15, verses 3 through 4, Paul even appears to say that we have to learn things about Jesus by discovering them only through Scripture. And Paul apparently knew nothing about any community of witnesses to consult for such things. He even appears to deny that any such sources ever existed. Yes, he says this in 1 Corinthians 4, 1 Corinthians 4, 6. Beyond, beyond revelators such as himself, combining both observations in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-9, Paul says the gospel that was revealed to him, as he says in Galatians 1, was only known by revelation and scripture. And stranger still, that gospel lacked any reference to Jesus having a ministry, or ever preaching the gospel, or performing great deeds, or having any parents who were even Davidic heirs, or being chosen by God at baptism. All Paul tells us is this, and I quote, For I delivered to you, first of all, which I also received, that according to Scripture, Christ died for our sins, and that he was buried, and that according to the Scriptures, he has raised on the third day, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to hundreds of brethren all at once, and then he appeared to James, and then to the apostles, and last of all to me as well, as if to an aborted fetus became, I am the least of the apostles, who is not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the assembly of God. End quote. Now what's odd here, note no, no what's missing. We are told that Christ's death and resurrection are known from scriptures, but he was only seen after that. There is no reference here to Cephas or the twelve or the others seeing Jesus before his death or having traveled with him or having sat at his feet or having been personally chosen by him. In other words, according to Paul's gospel, Jesus had no ministry and was personally unknown to anyone until he appeared to a few elect number after his resurrection. 
And this is confirmed in his letter to the Philippians 2, uh, verses 5 to 11, where again, Jesus has no ministry. All he does is descend from heaven, submit to death, and then reascend. So basically, all of this, more than likely, the way that he's telling us so far, all of this happened in one of the realms of heaven until he revealed himself to a chosen few, which is absolutely coincides with Mithraism and with um, Osiris and with Romulus. It coincides 100%. Now, this is also in agreement with what we found in 1 Clement, which is basically a letter written to the Christians in the city of Corinth around the same time as Paul, right around that early first century, um, by a bishop of Rome. So, where not only is scripture and private revelation appear the only way anyone appears to have known about this Jesus, but where Clement actually quotes scripture as the words of Jesus and only cites scripture as his evidence that certain things happened to Jesus. And he says that it's only through the apostles that Jesus transmitted the gospel, thus effectively denying Jesus had any public ministry. Now, Exactly as Paul, or one of his successor, would say, the gospel was only ever learned from Revelation and the writings of the prophets. He says this in Romans chapter 16, uh, verses 25 to 26. Not from any public ministry, and thus from any actual historical Jesus. We see the same thing in his letter to the Galatians in chapter 1, 11 through 12, if you're following along with me, where Revelation is his only source. And in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verses 3 to 8, where scripture and revelation are the only sources he or anyone else for that matter has. So even if you go to your Bible hub like I will, or using your, your own personal Bible, look in 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 25, where Paul references revelation as his only source, precisely where we should expect human testimony to be, his only source. And in Romans 15, 3-4, Paul all but admits to there being no actual stories about Jesus, that to learn things about him, we have to turn to Scripture, or again, revelations, or visions, or hallucinations. I don't know, did Paul get high? But this is what these letters simply say. When taken by themselves, and this is corroborated by other letters from the Pauline school, for example, um, uh, let's see, uh, Colossians 1, 24-29, it therefore requires no other added suppositions. This is therefore the simplest hypothesis for why Paul never shows any interest in the historical Jesus, nor did any of his congregations, nor did any of his other opponents, because there was no historical Jesus to be concerned about. There was only a revealed being, right? This is pure logic, which was not anything one could dispute, except by claiming to have had contrary revelations, as you would see, you know, in Galatians 1, 6 through 9. So apologetic attempts to try to dodge this bullet always involve suppositions, which are either not in evidence or implausible. Like, for example, the excuse that the earliest Christians, including Paul and his opponents in the early church, simply were not interested in anything Jesus had to say or anything that he did in his life. Now, that's just crazy, especially when we looked at the example that we just did with Tacitus and with Pliny, right? 
But there's no evidence for that at all. To the contrary, the letters are full of interest in Jesus' death and what it accomplished and the words that he revealed to the apostles. And a disinterest in everything else goes against all precedents in history as well as human nature. It should also be pointed out that if no Christians were ever interested in any details of Jesus' life, then they cannot have transmitted any details of his life either right? Which would mean, this would absolutely imply that the Gospels are therefore confirmed as fiction. You can't claim that Christians were simultaneously keen to accurately preserve memories of Jesus and to be completely uninterested in memories of Jesus at the same time. You can't have both. So the notion that they didn't care about any of that is simply a non-starter. Only the desperately and illogical would cling to such a thesis or a hypothesis of this. But then there's another common excuse that they make. is to say that Paul's letter were just occasional, with quotations over my head, addressing only the specific issues that came up, and were not thorough treaties on what Jesus said or did. The premise here is certainly correct. I, I, I agree. The conclusion is not, however. Why weren't any facts about the life or deeds or teachings or trial or execution of Jesus ever themselves an occasion of curie or examples of proof or, or even of dispute? Why were such things never relevant to any doctrine or question or dispute in the church that Paul spent thousands of words addressing? It is not that the letters you know, suggest that Paul was asked or tasked with discussing or mentioning such things. No, no event in Jesus' life, no details of Jesus' life ever had any relevance to any of the occasional issues he ever addressed. And no one ever used such events or details in any argument Paul had ever, you know, had to confront. No one was ever even the slightest bit curious about these things in the letters that he had that, you know, write. That is extremely improbable. That is just, it's inconceivable. It just, it doesn't happen. So by simply asserting that the letters were just occasional and didn't cover these other doctrinal things does not make any sense and is highly improbable. Now, indeed, we are not just faced with this extremely high expectation that at least something along those lines would absolutely come up or be relevant or ask about or even perhaps debate it. It's also improbable that even casual or even incidental mentions of historical facts about Jesus would never arise. Not once in 20,000 words. Such as Paul's happenstance mentioning of baptizing for the dead, as in 1 Corinthians 15.29, or fear of what angels might do if Christian women don't cover their hair in church as in 1 Corinthians 11, 9 through 10, or for the fact that Christians will one day judge the angels, right? This is all strange, in 1 Corinthians 6, 3. So Paul lets slip countless, countless incidental details like these about Christian practice and belief, not because he was required to, but simply because that that sort of thing that can't really be avoided. You would actually have to try very, very hard not to ever mention anything in 20,000 words beyond the bare facts you need to communicate. That these kind of incidental details about Jesus never happen. Yet incidental details about many other things 
do. And it's simply improbable. Unless there were no incidental details to talk about Jesus at all. Now, sure, there must have been a lot of details about the celestial Jesus and his ordeal in outer space. For example, we know from Ignatius that early church Christians had complex angelologies, but those were esoteric aspects from occult belief and doctrine, part of the Christian mysteries, if you would, and would often be considered as secrets. And these are given to us in examples from Ignatius, um, who was basically the Bishop of Antioch, and he's also a Christian writer, but, but or obviously not ethical to earthly, affa earthly affairs, excuse me. And in these letters from Paul, generally only deals with earthly affairs, right? So because Paul's writing between the congregations, he's answering questions to, to the churches and to these different parishes. But public facts about the biography, the ministry, defeats, the trial, and the execution of Jesus could not have been secrets. These are things, if this, if this happened on earth, these would have been very much included in these mundane letters between the churches and questions would have been asked. Nor would most of Jesus' teachings have been. Nor could public disputes about what he actually said or did not have arisen when disputes about everything else did. Nor could such disputes arise and, and, even, and never even appeal to who was present to see and to report them. Nor could it be that nothing in Jesus' life was relevant enough to earthly affairs of Paul's Christian congregations. Or again, that no one was curious enough to know them or, or eager enough to even reference or employ them in their arguments and communications. We simply never hear Paul say, from James, I learned that Jesus, who was his brother in life, had done X or answer, or Peter says that there was, you know, this is what Jesus said this, or Jesus went there, or this is why Jesus taught that, you know, or, or, or he's at odds with X, or, or argue any revelation of Jesus, or good as those, who, or those apostles have known the man personally, or anything even comparable. These simply are not arguments anywhere found in these epistles, nor anything like them, and that it was at a time when eyewitnesses were supposedly still living, abundant and running the church. Now, I think that's really weird. Now, many scholars have all said the same thing, that in all of Paul's letters, he simply just does not place Jesus in any earthly affairs. There's no picking of disciples. There's no family, there's no brothers, there's simply no miracles, there's no deeds, there's nothing that he said or done, and there's no arguments to contest it. But in Gerd Ludman's study of these letters, he concludes, and I'm going to do a little quotation here, not once does Paul refer to Jesus as a teacher, to his words as teaching, or to any Christians as disciples. In this regard, it is of the greatest significance that when Paul cites anything of Jesus, they are never designated. Rather, without a single exception, he attributes such sayings to the Lord. Paul thought that a person named Jesus had lived and that he now sat at the right hand of God in heaven. Yet, he shows only a passing acquaintance with traditions related to his life and nowhere as an independent acquaintance with them. In short, Paul cannot be considered a reliable witness to either the teachings, the life, or the historical existence of Jesus. End quote. Now, indeed, despite Jesus being so central, the central figure to every single one of Paul's arguments, 
it seems strange indeed that the epistles so seldom make references to Jesus' life and teachings. So Ludman also finds modern excuses for this as implausible. So let's just read another piece from here. The argument that Paul could assume his readers' familiarity with these facts because they had already passed them on in his missionary preaching, and therefore never had to ever mention them. And so this is not a convincing argument, guys, is basically what Ludman's saying here. So he could and does assume some familiarity with the Greek translation of the scripture found in the Septuagint, which was mediated to his converts either by himself or, or earlier by local Jewish community. But for this reason, he repeatedly and specifically cites in the course of his ethical teaching. Moreover, when Paul himself summarizes the context of his missionary preaching in Corinth, and I will quote in 1 Corinthians 2 um, verses 1 through 2 and in 15 um, verses 3 through 5, there is absolutely no hint that a narration of Jesus' early teachings was an essential part of it. In the letter to the Romans, which cannot presuppose the apostles' missionary preachings, and in which he attempts to summarize its main points, we find not a single direct citation of Jesus' teaching anywhere. One must record with some surprise the fact that Jesus' teachings seem to play a less vital role in Paul's religious and ethical instructions than does the Old Testament. And that's an end quote from Ludman. So what's surprising here is that Ludman isn't absolutely convinced that Jesus did not exist, but he finds that the epistles can be of no help in proving that he did, and he actually, actually expresses a lot of surprise at this. But if it's surprising, guys, remember... That's improbable, right? Because that's what surprising means. And in contrast, minimal mythicism maintains that Jesus, Paul believed had lived as a man, only lived in outer space. We talked about this in the realm, you know, the different realms between heaven and earth. Thus, on that theory, Paul's not mentioning any facts of his early life is not surprising at all. It is therefore more probable. So, Margaret Barker likewise expresses her perplexity in Paul's letters. At the center of Paul's preaching, there is not the teacher from Galilee, but what we do have is the Redeemer from heaven. Why, indeed, she argues from his letters, one would have to conclude that the Jesus who was only a teacher from Galilee probably disappeared from the tradition at a very early date so early that one wonders whether it was ever there at all. And then we have another scholar here. Nicholas Walter, more or less, concurs with these particular notions, concluding that we can detect no hint that Paul knew of any of those early Christian narratives and traditions about Jesus, which anyone ought to agree is, right, surprising. Even Hamlet Coaster admits Again, another um, theologian. It is generally agreed that Paul's letters do not permit any conclusion about the life of Jesus. And then Kurt Knoll further goes, concluding that the evidence in Paul's letters demonstrate that no fully formed Jesus traditions of either sayings or narratives existed in Paul's day, and that all such traditions therefore post-date his generation. So scholars are now starting to rethink the sequence of events given to us within the New Testament, 
And again, back to Nicholas Walters, has concluded that many of the teachings attributed to Jesus and in the Gospels were, in fact, fabricated out of the sayings of Paul. And there simply wasn't any collection of any teachings from Jesus beyond occasional revelations. And then James Dunn confesses that this would seem an odd conclusion to be forced to, given what appears in the Gospels. But once we agree that the Gospels are fiction, it does not look so odd after all, right? And even Dunn admits that the letters are peculiar on any other assumption. So Dunn himself had to resort to the implausible hypothesis that Paul was everywhere simply implying Jesus as his authority. But that notion is exploited by the fact that Paul makes no such assumptions where, when citing scripture as his authority. So as Ledman argued, why would he treat Jesus any differently? And in fact, Paul frequently identifies Jesus as, right, quotation marks, the Lord as his authority, and even takes care to distinguish between the command he received from his revealed Lord and his own opinions. In the examples you can find in 1 Corinthians 7, um, verse 25, as well as 14.37, or even 9.8, verses 9.14. You can compare those all together and see how we, you can see the contrast. And we have to face it. We have to face the fact of it, that there is simply no source known to Paul, for him or for anyone, but scripture and revelation from this celestial Jesus and all but rules out a historical Jesus. I'm going to cite a couple more here. So, uh, Mogens Mueller attempts to save Jesus from this particular conclusion by admitting that there is nothing in Paul's letters to confirm that Jesus recently existed, but we need, however, a broader understanding of the predicate historical, what is historical, as used in connection with the person of Jesus, such that, and there's in quotation, Historical should not be employed simply in connection with attempts to reconstruct details in the life and the teachings of Jesus, treating him solely as a figure of the past. The predicate historical should be allowed also to include his impact as it has been conveyed to us through the meanings attached to his life. End quote. But in the sense of historical, the mystic Christ the Christ whom Paul would have said really did exist, living and dying and rising in outer space, would also be a historical Jesus, right? The term then becomes meaningless to us. So unless Mueller wants to argue that Paul was right, there really is a Jesus living in outer space. But that's a question for theology, not for history. And that's what we're trying to get down to. Either way, the effects of this Lord's revelations and how he was understood from the reading of scripture would then be the cause of all the effects on Paul and his ideas that Mueller then catalogs. Those effects, therefore, cannot distinguish between minimal history and minimal mythicism. You see where we're going with this? We're trying to figure out the difference, you know, where we've got to weights and balances. Is it 80% mythicism and 20% historicity? That's what we're trying to get to in this study. So Mueller's study is therefore impotent. Impotent. Indeed, the fact that Mueller had to resort to this type of tactic that was forced to concede Paul never talks about a historical Jesus in the other sense ought to be admitted as strange 
and its self-confirmation that the mysticist's thesis makes this evidence even all that more likely, right? According to Thomas Vianna, followed Mueller's study with a contrary one, finding that Paul's letters more readily indicate that Paul had no knowledge of an earthly historical Jesus, but only of a celestial one. These letters, therefore, serve as evidence for what? Minimal mythicism. So, it's really quite interesting when you take a look at all these different theologians and what we've analyzed so far, so far and we're going to look at a lot more in terms of all the letters that Paul wrote, and more specifically, the ones that were not tampered with in later centuries. Now, if you're one of those listeners who's actually following along in the essay that I handed out to um, just a few, if you look at page 318, um, I actually included a, an image of an ancient Israelite cosmology. And if you look at it, you can see how the different realms that early Jewish thinking believed that this particular activity with Jesus could have played out in. Though so you have basically, you've got You've got the circle of the earth, you've got the dome that's over it, you've got the firmament, you've got the waters, you've got Shoel down below where the dead would go. But between heaven and going all the way up into, um, I'm sorry, but going from the earth, going up to the heaven, there's multiple layers and realms of places where Jesus would have these battles with Satan. So as you can imagine, other scholars are in complete denial over this. And in their efforts to deny it, they end up resorting to fallacious and self-refuting notions. Robert Van Voorst provides a typical example when he says, We should not expect to find exact historical references in any early Christian literature, which was not written for primarily historical purposes. So this attempt to deny the conclusion is even twice fallacious. Why? Because in the first place, exact historical references are not the only thing that are missing here. The silences, the silence extends even into inexact historical references. In fact, all historical references of any kind, beyond details so vague, they are just as expected to find in minimal mythicism, and thus unable to demonstrate any type of historicity at all, even in minimal historicity. The scale is quickly switching, as you can see. And in the second place, the general rule that Van Voorst is presuming that if early documents about a person were not written for primarily historical persons, then we should not expect to find those documents in any historical details about any per people of that era. It's not even remotely defensible, and in fact, it's generally false. So, letters about persons should almost always contain historical references to them, such as that of, we have letters and historical information for Julius Caesar and Tiberius Caesar, Alexander the Great, the Great Nebuchadnezzar, and um, Pontius Pilate even. But in fact, our expectations should be exactly the opposite in exactly this case. When the person in question is believed by the letter writer, and his intended readers to have been God's incarnate son, the savior of the universe, the most important being to ever walk the earth, whose every utterance is the word of God, and every act evidence of his mission and his teachings and qualifications as divine and the ultimate example for all doctrine and conduct, 
when every letter about him is primarily on the conveying knowledge or resolving disputes about who he was and what his true teachings were. It's simply impossible to avoid ever once mentioning any detail about that man's life and his character. Such a writer could not fail to call upon or to have to debate these things that Jesus actually said or did and that were said and done to him. So in short, it's simply not conceivable that the historical Jesus never said or did anything, nor is anything ever said or done to him for that matter. That was relevant to resolving any dispute or supporting any teachings raised in these letters, or to satisfy anyone's curiosity for that matter, or even just to be mentioned in passing. We've got nothing. Even if the author wanted to avoid mentioning everything, every single thing Jesus did, say, or do, and every single thing said or done to him, because all of it, every last bit of it, contradicted what they were teaching, then their audience, especially their opponents, would be asking them and challenging them with exactly that fact. So, so even then, they would be compelled to respond and thus compelled to mention such things anyway, right? Quite simply, the more you write about a man, the more probability rises that at some point you'll mention in passing at least some such details about him, things he said, things he heard, things he suffered, matters regarding his friends and his relations, his origins and his travels, people's even people's memories of him, including any reports being spread by his enemies, and so on, to avoid even mentioning even one such detail in over 20,000 words from Paul becomes increasingly improbable and the scales are really starting the tip. So until that probability starts to become small to the point of peculiarity, we simply must concede the silence of these letters is very improbable. So with that said, to insist it is nevertheless Possible is irreverent here. You still have to face the fact of its improbability, and that improbability must always factor into your equation. It now becomes very significant, as Ludman pointed out before that we just talked about, that Paul never once mentions anyone being Jesus' disciple. He never uses that word at all. Not, not, not even the twelve in 1 Corinthians 15.5 are said to be the twelve disciples right? Paul doesn't even know the word. Paul only knows of apostles who, like him, received revelations from the Lord, as in 1 Corinthians 9.1 and even in his letter to the Galatians in 1 verse 1, and confirms their status by proving God had bestowed on them miraculous powers, as seen in 2 Corinthians 12.12. 12. So when Paul ranks the members of the church in order of authority, he says, God has sent some in the church, first apostles, second prophets, thirdly teachers, then those with powers, most likely those that were performing exorcist, then charismatic healers, and then aides, administrators, and those who are speakers in tongues, as seen in 1 Corinthians 12, 28. Disciples don't make the list. They're not in there. They don't even exist. The word does not exist in Paul's vocabulary just apostles and those members in the order of the church. Instead, first in rank simply are all the apostles, just like Paul. 
a special category of those who knew Jesus in life and were personally selected by him then, or where his family is entirely absent from the entire thing. And these apostles include people we've never even heard about elsewhere, such as Apollos, as in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 4 through 5, or possibly Andronicus and Junicus in Romans 16, 7. And oddly enough, Paul never even says that the three pillars, Cephas, James, and John, were Jesus' followers in life or were specifically appointed by him, as seen in Galatians 2, verse 9. Only in the Gospels does the legend appear, Cephas then becoming Peter. And in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 8, also fails to mention any such relationship, which is even more bizarre. There, they are only appointed, so as far as we can tell, by being blessed with this vision of the risen Lord. That is Paul's point in including himself in this list of them, is that he is part of one of the few that has received the vision of Jesus through outer space. He simply assumes his calling an apostle, as in Galatians 1 and 1 Corinthians 9, 1, was the same as theirs. So this basically is pointing out that James and Peter and Cephas and you know, they were only receiving Jesus through visions and hallucinations or perhaps they're smoking a pipe or something like that and they got high. So we have to ask, why would Peter or James or John, for that matter, accept Paul into the apostolate at all if he hadn't been chosen by Jesus in life and struggled with him in life? How could this claim to be an apostle carry any weight whatsoever? Why did visions of the Lord take precedence over actually having had the man himself appoint you in person, in real life? This too is improbable, not impossible, but definitely more weighing on the side of improbability, unless that is the only way anyone was ever appointed by Jesus, through hallucinations then Peter would have had a harder time kicking Paul to the curb, right? If he too could only claim that he was an apostle because of through his hallucination. You got all these guys running around with hallucinations and they decide to work together. For then any challenge to Paul's claim would just be as usable to challenge Peter's or John's. This fact alone exposes the weakness of another common apologetic argument, that Paul deliberately avoided talking about eyewitness testimony because he would not call attention to the fact that he himself wasn't one. Right? This does not explain, this does not explain why his not being one did not cause his rejection by Peter and by the pillars. It does not explain why they ended up treating him as their equal, and apostles just like them. Moreover, this excuse that Paul is trying to hide his status as a non-witness simply doesn't make any logical sense at all. As someone once phrased this objection to me about why Paul never discussed anyone knowing Jesus, it's not surprising he doesn't relate details about their relationship to the historical Jesus, especially if that was already common knowledge to his reader. Why would he put a finger on his own weakness, right? Because if it was his weakness, he would have to then. 
we need to put ourselves into the shoes of the actual Christian congregation that he was writing to. This is the only way we can really figure this out. Got to put ourselves into the shoes. Paul is not writing to persuade us, some random foreigners 2,000 years later. He's writing to persuade actual contemporaries from who he could not hide so decisive as a weakness. He's, we're talking about Paul talking to his congregations then. Remember, we don't have the Gospels yet. We don't have Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John. We don't have any of these other books. All we have is the Old Testament scriptures, which we are to interpret through Paul's writings and his, and his hallucinations. Basically, they're just talking about what Paul envisioned and what Peter envisioned, what John envisioned. That's all they're talking about in these churches. So Paul has to do a lot of arguing. So if it was weakness, he would constantly have to address it. Head on, because it would constantly be thrown in his face every single time and constantly used against him, becoming a constant hurdle he would have to figure out how to overcome, right? Yet there is no sign of this in his letters that it was. Not one. There are no arguments about it. This is just another, you know, made-up excuse for which we have no evidence of and ample evidence to the contrary. So this is what we're getting down to, is what Paul says to us in these 20,000 words. Because this is what it's really getting down to. And what I constantly like to try to do is put myself into the shoes. So now if I'm in one of these congregations of Paul, um, whether it's Corinth or Galatians or wh wherever we are, and Paul comes up and he starts trying to convince us, you know, perhaps I am a, um, I'm a pagan, I'm, 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 a, I'm a Gentile pagan, and also next to me is a um, is a Messianic Jew. And here's this guy, and he's telling us about this Savior that he only knows through these visions and these hallucinations. And that he the Savior died for us, and he rose again three days later. But again, there's not one argument. And, and Paul argues in 20,000 words a lot of mundane arguments. And, and, you know, in terms of this craziest matters. But we don't get anyone saying in any of these letters, Hey, Paul, how did he die? Nobody asks. Hey, Paul, who killed him? Nobody asks. Hey, Paul, where, 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 where did this happen? Nobody asks. He doesn't have to defend it. That's just bizarre. So let's take a look at some more examples here from Paul's 20,000 words. So we have 1 Corinthians 11, 23-26, and 15-8. Now, these particular verses focus prominently on the witness of Paul as his peers. There is no indication he was shy about this at all. In fact, Paul's whole argument of Galatians 1 through 2 is that human testimony was evidently distrusted by the Galatians to the point that Paul had to deny that he ever relied on it and had to insist instead that he had all of his information by direct revelation, and that he didn't even talk to anyone else in the church for years. He is even forced to swear this, according to Paul. He clearly had to argue this way to persuade the Galatians his gospel was legitimate. So Galatians only trusted direct revelation. That makes no sense at all, unless we're talking about minimal mythicism. So that's strange, right? So how could Paul make this argument if there was a historical Jesus 
And therefore, eyewitness companions and family of Jesus still living and active in the church, whose authority could never be trumped in such a way, and whose direct testimony would surely be paramount to deciding all doctrinal authority in the church. The Galatians could not possibly have wanted Paul to prove anything, but that he had his information from eyewitnesses, whose authority would then be paramount, right? Only if there were no such witnesses would revelation be defining feature of apostolic authority. And only then would Paul have to defend his relying on nothing but that. As only then would the Galatians accept only that, rejecting human testimony instead of illegitimate as apparently they were. Otherwise, Paul would have to insist here that he learned the gospel from the first witness and then swear they can confirm to the Galatians that he had stuck to what they told him. But that's not at all what he argues. Now, something we need to imagine here, because we talked about it in previous episodes. Now, Paul and Peter and John, they were a sectarian group of Messianic Jews that claimed to have visions of this Messiah, right? Christus. And you know that there were also dozens of other Messianic Jewish cults that were arriving on the scene at the same time. Paul was not alone. He had challenging congregations, challenging pastors, challenging leaders. We know that there were even leaders that were out there claiming to be the Messiah. We talked about that, right? So there's a lot of activities going on in Judea right now and all through Rome. So it's a curious question that one has to ask. How can what Jesus said and did in life not be relevant to anything in Galatians chapters 1 through 2? How can Paul never talk about it when his opponents would be talking about it all the time? They would have been making arguments against Paul or opposing questions and challenges to him from citing testimony from and about the historical Jesus, which Paul would have been compelled to answer or at least address. There would be no plausible way Paul could expect to win any argument by never ever addressing his opponents. Evidence or even acknowledging it existed. His opponents would have won every single argument and every congregation all those dozens of other congregations and religious leaders we talked about. He would have lost them. Paul may as well be writing to himself for all the good it would do. Yet that is not what we see happening in these letters. The anxiety Paul is supposed to have had over his not being an eyewitness never appears. It's modern fiction. So this is evident. For example, in the passage where Paul even uses the phrase super apostles, if you would, which in Greek is, is huper leon apostali. It literally translates to apostles beyond exceedingly, which some who make this argument cite as evidence of his anxiety over not being an eyewitness like them. But in fact, Paul never says this phrase relates to their having known Jesus. To the contrary, he says it relates to their being much better speakers than him. This is important. Paul had a horrendous stutter, his thorn in his side, actually. And this is found in 2 Corinthians 11, 1 through 7, as well as in chapter 12, 7 through 13, which in context indicates that the famous thorn in his side he complains about was a stutter or perhaps even a speech impediment. 
Remember that apostle means messenger. So being a super great messenger has a more obvious meaning in the Greek term. They were better at it than he was. Paul might also have been concerned about the fact that they were apostles first, as that could have been a little problem for him, even if Jesus didn't exist. But he never says that, and he doesn't mean that when he calls the others apostles super exceedingly. He means that they are spectacularly good at selling the gospel, while he is but a poor speaker and lessened person. So when he asserts that he's as good as them, he refers to the, his ability to receive revelations of the Lord, just like they did. He says this to us in 2 Corinthians 12, 1-7, and performs miracles in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, and even demonstrates spiritual knowledge in 2 Corinthians eleven six. His only failing compared to them, Paul says, is simply not being a good speaker. He says this in 2 Corinthians eleven six, and likewise implied in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 3 through 4. So once again, conspicuously absent is any argument that his revelations ought to be reckoned as good as their knowing the man personally. But to the contrary, he always assumes his access to Jesus was identical to theirs, as seen in 1 Corinthians 9, 1 and 15, 5 through 8 and that it was the most anyone could ever claim, as seen again and supported in Galatians 1, 11-24. So supporting this conclusion is the fact that Paul speaks of people preaching of another Jesus, other than the one he preached about, and that this involved receiving different Gospels. We see this in 2 Corinthians eleven four, and also take a look at Galatians 1, 6-9. So Paul would not likely speak of other Jesuses like this if Jesus was a historical man, for example. But for them, there would be, obviously, there would be only one Jesus and only one gospel, the one that he taught. So Paul would have to say that his opponents were saying false things about Jesus or misrepresenting Jesus or getting what Jesus said wrong altogether. And of course, Paul would have to be constantly responding to the same claims against him from his other opponents, from his opponents. But Paul never once talks about that, does he? Or as if anyone ever did. Yet that's how one would have to talk about a tradition based on friends and witnesses of an actual person, right? Of an actual man. But if Jesus was only a revealed deity, then it would certainly be more likely that we'd hear about different revealed deities named Jesus appearing to different people, or false spirits claiming to be Jesus, teaching different gospels, such that for Paul, only one of these Jesuses was the real one. Even if angels themselves said otherwise, as in Galatians 1.8, because Paul had a direct line to his Jesus, and no one could honestly claim anything better. So accordingly, the usual excuses just simply do not hold water whatsoever, right? They go against the evidence of the epistles themselves and against all of our background knowledge regarding how people behave. It's not natural, everything that we've surveyed so far. If historicity is to survive as the more probable hypothesis, some new theory must be conjured, which not only admits and explains the bizarre silence of the epistles, but does so in accord with proven facts of comparable cases and human nature. Thus either A, having strong support and established background knowledge rather than careening violently through everything that we know, 
or perhaps B, in a way that can be strongly and independently confirmed from evidence in the epistles themselves, or even ideally both. We have never seen such an argument. Despite surveying a century of trying by many scholars in the field, we have to conclude the evidence of the epistles, and all that we presently know is simply improbable. But exactly what should we expect from mythicism after all? So in conclusion of this episode, that leaves us with one remaining argument against this conclusion. The claim that the epistles are not, in fact, silent about a historical Jesus. That, in fact, there are implicit references to them that establishes his history. Jesus' history, that is. And so I think for the episodes that are coming up next, 9, 10, 11, and 12, they're going to be about taking a closer look at that and see if, in fact, you know, that is true or if that is false. So I think this is a good place to end episode 8, chapter 2, the age of mystery cults, and more appropriately, was the Apostle Paul a mythicist? So that's what we're kind of getting down to. So in the last few chapters, you know, I took you directly into, you know, the Gospels, Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John, running sometime around 77, all the way up to 130 of the Common Era, you know, with these four pieces of literature that were in circulation in Christianity. But with those stories that we talked about, now it's time to go back and look into um, 40s, 50s, and 60s before the Jewish Roman War really ignited, right? Really ignited in Jerusalem. And so it's important to look and see how this Apostle Paul, with all these other dozens of mystery cults that were appearing that were messianic in theme, and see if he's any different from the others. And it's strange that there's so much silence in these letters without having any counter-arguments from some of these other cults. So I think this is a good place to leave it. I hope that you enjoyed this particular episode. And um, a lot of this, if you want to read more on it, you've got to... Um, I definitely advise that you get onto Amazon and get Richard Carrier's On the Historicity of Jesus. It's fantastic. It's about an 800-page read, if not more. Um, it's full of statistics. Um, it uses the Bayesian theory to formulate, you know, what the percentages of, uh, histor of a historical Jesus versus a, a mystical Jesus. And it's a great read. It's um, full of great research. And the nice thing about it is you don't have to end with his particular conclusion. You don't have to leave that book being a mythicist. But you have a lot of great information that's laid out in front of you. Um, it's a great uh, study book, um, a great way to learn about what the Gospels and even what the Epistles were saying. All right. So I appreciate you listening. Forward this on if you think anyone else might appreciate it. And everybody, if nothing else, be great humans. Have a great weekend. <laughs>